we believe very strongly that there is no wrong way um, and everybody should have their time and their room to do it their way. Yeah, I second that motion completely. <laughs> this is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Welcome back. If you are new here, welcome. We try to cover as much research as possible that is focused on child development and parenting. I want to help you make the right decisions. That, And when I say right, it means the decision that just makes sense for you and your family. I don't want to tell you how to do it. I want you to make that decision based on the conversations that I have with both experts and researchers um, to help you. Now, today's uh, conversation is uh, one that just brought up a lot of questions on Instagram when I announced it. If you're not following uh, Curious Neuron on Instagram, you could follow us at Curious underscore Neuron. You can also go to our website if you'd like to read some blog posts or listen to some old podcast episodes at CuriousNeuron.com. And you can watch the new uh, podcast episodes uh, on our new YouTube channel. Um, and you just have to search Curious Neuron Podcast and hopefully you will find it. If not, send me an email at info at And remember, you can always reach out to me um, to suggest a topic and um, or if you just want to say hi. But if you leave a review and a rating for this podcast, if you're enjoying it, please send me a screenshot at info at And I will send you a free PDF from our academy. I have Meltdown Mountain that really helps you um, have some visuals to help your child understand their emotions and when they're climbing that emotion mountain. And I just released a new one that's all about music. So if you'd like that for free, send me an email and rate and review the podcast. Before we move forward, I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. We have similar interests in the sense that we believe science should be accessible to everyone. And that is what I continue to do with Curious Neuron. And thank you to all of you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. It is packed with information. If you have a notebook, get it out. Um, but also, um, I'm going to be interviewing the authors of the book called Giving Hope. I will have the links in the show notes. I read the entire book and it just, this is one of the few books that just had so many post little notes and, and I highlighted a lot, but I'm, I, I feel confident now that when something will happen, whether it's an illness in the family or a death, that I will have the right words um, with my children. It's just that kind of book that gives you the, the tools that you need. I would first like to introduce our guests to today. We do have two. Dr. Elena Lister is a an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Presbyterian Whale Cornell Medical Center and a senior consulting analyst for grief at Columbia Psychoanalytic Center. She treats adults and children facing all life challenges, specializing in grief, and is a frequently sought-out expert when dealing with loss in schools and organizations across the nation in the States. She is the co-author of Giving Hope, uh, Conversations with Illness, Death, and Loss that was just released in August 2022. 
Dr. Michael Schwartzman is a senior psychologist and board-certified psychoanalyst. Um, he has worked with children, adolescents, adults, and families for more than 40 years. In addition to his private practice, Dr. Schwartzman is the consulting psychologist at two independent schools for children and lectures regularly to parents and professional colleagues on child development, parenting, and school-related issues. He's also the author of The Anxious Parent, Freeing Yourself from the Fears and Stress of Parenting. The link to their new book, Giving Hope, as well as all the links mentioned during this interview will be at the end of this episode. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with them and I hope you do as well. I will see you on the other side. I am here with Dr. Elena Lister and Dr. Michael Schwartzman for uh, a topic that will be difficult for some of us um, to to navigate. Perhaps you've uh, experienced a loss recently. However, what I can promise you is this conversation will have tons of tools. Um, if you are watching from YouTube, I have their book here in front of me, um, Giving Hope, and it's filled with information that I think we all need at the tip of our fingers. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It is such an honor to be here. It's a pleasure. It's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you both do. And I think before we dig into the questions, you know, when I was reading through the parents' questions, there was a common aspect through all of them. It's that we want to protect our child and we want to make sure that we're saying certain things in, in a certain way that won't the word used by some parents was damage them or scare them or create some fears in them. Um, so we will get into that. But I'm curious to know, before we begin our conversation, what led to you writing this book now? What, what felt like it was the right moment for you? Well, you know, it's interesting. We started this book before the pandemic. Oh, no way. <laughs> uh, so we were writing about this when the pandemic began. Mm. And it just turned out that we were grieving for the world, with the mm. world, along with the world. Um, so what started us to write this book is uh, an experience I had back 25 years ago when our daughter died. Um, this is me and my husband, Phil. Um, she was six years old and she had leukemia and she died after two years of illness. And at that time, we worked with her school and her older, uh, my older daughter's school, her older sister, who was nine at the time, to help them take care of our older daughter, who was going to be being in school while her sister was dying and then dealing with the grief. And what that taught me, and we talk about this in the book, is that children can talk about death. And although we had been trained and I had experienced before uh, learning about child development, I had never lived that. And I lived it also with our daughter who was dying, who asked directly, am I dying? And my husband and I chose to say yes. And we we lived the last three months of her life with all of us knowing about it and talking about it. So that started a detour in my career in which I felt determined to help other people learn to talk about dying and death. Also, mainly because no one really could talk with us about it. We were sort of every parent's worst nightmare. And so that was kind of a bad feeling to have at a time when we were feeling a great deal of grief. So fast forward, I've worked in this field for 25 years now. And um, a few years ago, it seemed to me that I kept getting the same question. Do you have this written down any place? when I was talking with people at schools or in my practice. And so I thought, you know, I actually haven't found this particular approach written down any place. I, I, I don't know, could I write a book? <laughs> and it was a lot of self-doubt. But then I approached Michael, 
because he and I had worked together at a school and he can talk about that some. Uh, and I just thought, well, if I've got Michael on my team, the two of us can do this together. And <laughs> we began. Um, mm. So that's that's how we got to this. I love that story. And just to, my my condolences for the loss of your daughter. And Thank it you. was it was a really powerful way to start the book because I felt just your strength of going into the school and speaking to the kids. I think some of us would have wanted to avoid those conversations with our child or with their friends. But the fact that you went and did it right away, I think provides comfort for some kids to have their questions answered, which is what we're afraid to do sometimes as parents. I just want to add one thing there. I was also terrified about doing it and didn't mm. want to do it, just so you know. <laughs> In other words, our point is that we all feel that as parents. Mm. We don't want to have to talk about this. None of us want to have to think about it, but we do have to. Yeah. And therefore, we'd like to help you do it. Mm. Um, how do we begin these conversations? So um, we can approach this in, in many different angles. I think, like you said, it's talking to somebody who's experiencing the loss, it's talking to somebody who has an illness, a child. Let's just say a family member passes away. I, I We experienced this, this ourselves where my husband's grandmother passed away and we didn't know how to tell our daughter, do we wait? Do we bring her to the funeral? Do we avoid this conversation? Or it, what questions will she ask that we're not ready for? So let's say somebody does pass away. We'll start with the grandparents since this might be a common um, one in families. How do we approach this um, with our child? What are some of the first steps? You know, it's it's clear that something very sad is happening and parents often question to themselves should i tell do i tell do i have to tell and then when do i tell i mean one of the reasons why we wrote the book is because people don't know and we thought you know given experiences that we had had we could put that down which is what we do um so the how to to this you know because in that parent-child relationship, there's so much back and forth. We set off our children, our children set us off. It's 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 very important, and we, we start with this, uh, for a parent to kind of like settle themselves yeah. so that the more in control, the more understanding, the more thoughtful they can be about their own reactions, the more easily and readily they can focus on their child. Mm -hmm. And since their child is going to have a reaction to them, and that's just going to compound the feeling. It's really important to be settled. Um, and then, you know, once you feel like you're settled, it's very important to face up to the idea of telling your child because they're going to be able to pick up things from you anyway. Mm -hmm. And the more they recognize that you're meeting their concerns with honest answers, the more readily they'll be able to trust you then and, 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 and moving forward. And it's a lot to take on. So, uh, you know, you, you want your child to feel like they can trust you because it's important to be able to go through this, you know, and have a, a clean, clear picture from the get-go. Sorry, that word trust really stood out to me in the book because it's something that I think crosses our mind, like which, how honest should I be about, let's say the person's illness or how bad this illness is or that the person is dying right now and we do need to say goodbye. I think it's something that we do struggle with, but what I got from your book is that we just need to be honest, right? Throughout the whole process. Yeah, I mean, I think that is very true. We have one of our sayings is tell the truth, mm. nothing but the truth but not necessarily the whole truth, at mm -hmm. least not all at once. And as Michael was talking about trust, 
the idea is that if you don't tell things to your child as they are happening, there are a few consequences that are not so great. One is your child probably senses that something is going on and that they're not getting the full story. They're not getting the truth about what's happening. Um, So that also, that breeds a a sense of will mom, dad, grandparent, uncle, whoever's taking care of them, teacher, tell me when things are happening. Mm -hmm. And if you can't trust that person to tell you when things are happening, a child can generate anxiety because then they, I don't know if something is happening or not. Um, So telling them actually allows them to know exactly what it is and to not imagine things that could possibly be even worse than the reality. Um, The other thing about that trust is if you start young with a child, showing them that you respect them, that they are part of a family, that they're part of a family conversation, when they get older, they will continue to talk to you about things that are important. Like when they get to be teenagers and the stakes are even higher in terms of their behavior, Mm -hmm. like drugs or sex or other things. So Uh, We believe that foundation of trust starts with showing that you're willing to have difficult conversations with them, that you're going to face the hard stuff and you're going to be steady and you're going to be sturdy and that they can come to you, therefore, about their own hard stuff. Interestingly enough, last week, a mother wrote to me and said that um, she had lost her baby. She was seven months pregnant at the time when she lost the baby and she had a three-year-old. Um, that was asking, where's my baby sister? You know, like she went to the hospital and came back noticeably looking different and and grieving, obviously. Um, And she didn't know how to approach it. And I had just finished reading your book. So I did recommend, you know, take care of yourself first. And what what are the steps? Because grieving, especially the loss of a child, how how, when are you actually ready to have this conversation with your other child if they're young? And and how do you begin this, this process of taking care of yourself? you're identifying like exactly where these two these two experiences come together where you want to be able to honor your child's request you know you want to be able to tell them but at the same time you have to be able to talk it through to yourself um in 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 our way of looking at this we rely a lot on the idea that you have a partner you have a friend you have someone close to you where you can also go through your own talking through you know what 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 has happened you know the how do you know that you're ready is uh a very important question i mean you know that you're ready to the best of your ability and if you become emotional if you are unable to you know give the whole story and you falter falter is a word but you know because you have emotion um you can see this as a conversation that is many conversations and that you can go back to what you were, you know, stumbling over earlier, but it's also why we say it's good to talk this through with a partner who can, you know, stand by and, you know, add. Now they also might be going through something and it's very important for them to be able to work it out for themselves. But, you know, the fact that a family has to muddle through this is not a, uh, is not an issue in the way we think about it. It's it's an emotional experience where we really put a lot of emphasis on feeling the emotion and carrying yourself through that emotion because that's very scary. And there is nothing that's going to explain it away. It might soften it away, 
but it, it as Elena talks about it, 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 it provides a steadiness and a sturdiness. So together you're taking it, which is a kind of antidote to the sense that you're losing something at the same time. Yeah. That this term that you used again is something that stood out to me is where you're having many conversations. I think we visualize it or picture it as that one conversation that when we tell them, but it becomes a conversation that continues for a couple of weeks or perhaps even months. I experienced this with my own daughter where like, you know, maybe a day later after finding out, it was like, well, will you die? And then we didn't know how to approach that one as well. And then, you know, do all old people die? Do you have to wait t till you're old? what did she have, you know, and it wasn't something very serious. It's just something that led to complications. Well, what if I get that? What if you get that? <laughs> it was a lot in a moment where you're, you're already grieving, but you know, these are questions that children come up with naturally through their curiosity and they're piecing things together, right? How do you continue these conversations again? Now we've perhaps um, taken care of ourselves, And now the, there are the follow-up questions for, from our child. Do we address all of these, especially that question of will you die? I think we have a lot of trouble with that. How do we address that? Yeah. So, I mean, children are remarkably wonderful in how they can present us with questions often at the most inopportune moments. <laughs> yes. right? When we're least ready and we feel like a deer <laughs> in the headlights and so one thing to know right away is with any question, and, and um, I'm going to get feeling a little bit more about knowing yourself and how that relates to this. With any question, you don't have to answer that second. Mm -hmm. You can always say, you know, that's such an important question. I'm really glad you asked me. And I need a few minutes to think it through because I really want to give this the attention it needs for us to talk about it. So that's one thing. You know, okay, so at least, you know, you've got your own few minutes to gather yourself together and or talk to someone else or refer to a book, for example. <laughs> um, and um, that steadies you. And then I would love, and Michael and I can do this together, to go through an, an, possible answers to each of the questions that your child raised and also really appreciate how trusting your child was to ask you these questions. Because mm -hmm. if you create an environment where your child knows they can ask anything, then they're not left alone because they're going to have these questions anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the questioning actually starts with ourselves. So you ask yourself, okay, what does this loss mean to me? Mm -hmm. The mom who was pregnant and had a, a in, in utero baby die. Mm. Okay, so what does this mean to me? How am I grieving? What am I feeling? Is this bringing up anything I've thought about or felt before? And then what am I worried about about my child's reaction to this, my mm. three-year-old in that example? Am I worried that she'll be terrified always? Am I worried she'll be disappointed? Am I worried she'll be mad? So you sort of Ask yourself these things, almost like a envisioning it before it's happening. And then you start off these conversations by saying, so we have some sad news to tell you. Um, and let's say it's grandpa or even a baby that was not yet born. Mm. This person died um, and we're all going to have some time together. Mm. And then you can pause. And we human beings don't like awkward silences. So as parents, we tend to fill them up with things yes. <laughs> um, because it makes us feel like we're doing something. And the idea here is to tolerate 
you know, a few seconds of silence to get your child space so that they can think through what their questions are. And then maybe the last questions, one of the questions might be, can we go have peanut butter and jelly for lunch? You know, mm. and that's okay too. But as Michael was saying, it's many conversations. So maybe that was enough for right now. Yeah. And then later, often at bedtime, even though it's not ideal at bedtime, your mm. child will then say, well, wait a minute, are you going to die too? And, and there it all comes. And then you can even say, give me a few minutes, or maybe if you've thought about it, you've got some answers in your mind. What do we say to that question? Because I know parents are saying, just give me the words. <laughs> what do we say to our child, especially a child who's maybe seven and under and asks, like, will we die one day? How do we address that? The um, that's, that's always the killer. The uh, question where you just take a deep breath because who knows how you feel about that whole idea. True. And uh, yeah. you don't want to say something that's going to be very alarming to your to your child. So, you know, we we recommend, especially if you're doing it in contrast to grandpa and grandma, you're talking about, you know, the fact that you take very good care of yourself and that you go to the doctor and you know that you're in very good health and you have many, 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 many more years to live and that you understand that they would be afraid for that, especially when they've heard that someone else mm. has passed away. Um, but that you you know, are in very good health and you take good care of yourself just like they do. And um, you're going to live for a long, you, you're going to live for a long mm -hmm. time. You know, it's, it's not, we're giving hopeful, suggestive answers. We're not able to predict what the future is. Which so is it's true. the yeah. way we tell, and it's what we do at the same time as we tell. Um, and that we're available, like Elena says, over time to answer as the child knows more so that they bring more into the question. And as that happens, you're telling them more and you're explaining more um, and you're always hoping for the best. It's the truth. Over time is something I'd like to discuss now um, because I, I there was a mom who had reached out a few years ago and her husband had committed suicide when her sons were one and three. And it was only when they were about, you know, five and eight, they started asking questions of how did he die? Um, she had brought me in um, to explain the brain. She had told them that he had died of suicide and explained that sometimes our brain doesn't function the same way and, or something's changed in the brain. So I had explained <laughs> neurotransmitters to these very young kids because she approached it that way and she wanted to do it that way. How do you approach such a difficult conversation or the death of a parent um, to a young child? Would you take it, take the same steps or is there a little something extra there? I mean, when it, when it's within the immediate family, somebody really close like that, actually we, we initially were not going to devote a separate section of the book mm. to this. And then as we were writing, we realized that this really needed its own yeah. section because there mm. were things about it that were what we were saying in general and also more. Um, but in that circumstance, um, the parent, let's say a spouse has died or a partner has died, that remaining adult in this child's life is deeply, deeply grieving or affected by the loss. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we would say, if you can marshal in other people, mm -hmm. other adults in that child's life to help 
be solid supports along with you, um, even in the telling of the news. And then every time, fast forwarding years later, every time the child brings up a question about it, you're there saying, you know, so again, it may sound kind of corny, but you know, that's a really good question. Let's sit down and talk about that. And then you expand more. We believe that if a child is asking a question, they need the answer. Yeah. Um, and so that not answering it gives them more anxiety than actually answering it, whatever the answer is. My um 98-year-old mother-in-law who died recently, um, very beloved member of the family. Mm-hmm. And set, used to say, well, there are a few sayings that we always repeated of hers. One was pain shared is pain halved. Mm. And so the idea is, yeah, this is painful for all of us, but we're going to be in it together. And that means we're all sort of carrying the same burden together, mm. even if it's a very harsh reality that somebody ended their life by suicide. Yeah. Um, if you want, we could talk specifically about how we think about uh, talking with a child about suicide. But we do want to say that it's very common nowadays for that to be mentioned at a funeral. It's co- commonly talked about in the media. So you really can't prevent your child from hearing that word and understanding that it happens. Therefore, best that you have the conversation with them rather than they learn about it on the Internet. Gosh, yes. knows what they're going to learn there or from their 17 year old cousin. Gosh, knows how they're going to hear about it mm. then. You're not there to process it with them. And that's an interesting point because we might avoid or never have the opportunity to talk about certain things. And But if we have the news on and there's they're talking about deaths because of, let's say, a hurricane that just happened, right? Or or they're talking about a, um, a mass shooting or murder and we have young kids in the room, they might start questioning what are all the, you know, or suicide, like you said. I, I think it's important that even if it's not happening in, in our environment, that we're having these these, these discussions with our kids. Um, and I, I love that you devoted a chapter to it because I do think it's something important um, that needs a lot of attention and focus on. How? What are some tips um, for for a parent whose partner perhaps um, did commit suicide and they don't know how to have this conversation? They probably just said, or they might have said that the parent passed away or died. But what? How do they start this conversation in a way that again, our fear is always to scare a child or to, you know, we don't want to change the views they had of that parent. So how do we have this conversation? So, so just to broaden that for a moment, the, you know, the idea that we come with is that difficult conversations are inevitable, mm. and the reason why we encourage, you know moving, stepping forward as opposed to shying away is because the conversation you have today will help you with the conversation you can have tomorrow. So the more this becomes just a practice within your family, the more easily you can fall into what becomes, you know, a difficult but supported conversation. With with suicide, so we, we have a general idea or, you know, uh, we each do this in our own practices so in our own ways but the general idea is that a person has developed a sickness uh, uh, an illness an inability uh, to find the will to move forward in the difficulty of their life now that's a complicated statement that's a very hard notion to, to to bring across and you try to do it you know depending on the age and the experience of the child but again it's an idea that you can go back over, 
different times in different ways because mm-hmm. you're trying to get across something that's very difficult to understand. Oftentimes, parents will feel, I'm afraid I don't want to put an idea into my child's mind. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, the point there is that while on the one hand, you know, people do have a hard, hard time pressing forward when they're having difficult time. This is why we're together and we talk through and we work on our own abilities to handle these very difficult things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tend to be very, very successful doing this. And I promise you that, you know, whatever it is that's on your mind, we will want to talk about it, you know, to make it as bearable as it can be. Um, I think it's also, you know, while well, suicide is talked a lot, talked about quite often, and is recognized as a reason why people die, um, it's it's also a fairly unusual thing to happen. Um, and I think you can be reassuring, you know, in 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 that way, even though you're open about what you're talking about. Mm. I love that both of your scripts that you're providing us with really show that we're trying to comfort our child and show them that we don't have all the answers, perhaps right now, but that we do want to give them the answers when we're ready, you know, perhaps in the future, close future. Um, but just at least having that, not not avoiding it, but having the conversation around that, because I think it's, I'm assuming that's really comforting for the child to say like, okay, it's not being ignored. They're not telling me to not ask that question ever again, but they're telling me that you know, when they're ready or when they have the right words, we'll have that conversation. I think also we all want to prevent our children from suffering in any way. Yeah. You know, like yeah. if we could just wrap them in bubble wrap and protect yes. them from <laughs> all the sadness and the and the horrors that are in the world, but we can't do that. Mm. So what we can do in having these difficult conversations is give them the tools to handle the stuff that is rough and that is sometimes part of life. So rather than thinking about it as how do I not upset my child? How do I not scare my child? We think of it as you're telling them something in a supported environment and you're ready to deal with what they feel. So they may feel scared. They may feel terrified. They may feel angry. They may feel confused, but you're there to help that feeling sort get sorted out, get expressed, and maybe find something to do with it. Um, and when we talk about uh, things that are in the media, like death in the media, and let's say it's that hurricane. Mm. There was just recently Hurricane yeah. Ida. So you, you're horrified to hear that people died and suffered and your child is seeing this. Mm. So what do we do with that? Well, Mr. Rogers used to say, look to the helpers. So you point out that, yeah, there are rough things that are happening, but look at all the human beings who are stepping in to help. And then you can think with your child, so how can we help? And it could be that you send money or cans of soup, or it could be that your child writes a note with you to somebody, you know, to the, I don't know, whoever in Florida where they're having a really especially rough time. So yeah, your child is scared and then you're giving them something to do with it, to put that agony to good use. Is there, I hear the term closure a lot when it comes to death. And I wanted to bring that up because it just, you mentioned the note. So I think, you know, I've heard parents say, you know, let's just write a goodbye letter or something so that my child has closure. I see it a bit differently. I don't, I don't, and maybe this is wrong, but I don't think you can ever just like 
forget and it's done with. I don't, I, I, you know, my own grandfather passed away quite a few years ago and I'll often get really good memories. Like if I go to my grandmother's house and I, I don't have closure with it, I'm okay with it. You know what I mean? Like I've been able to move past the, the sadness of it, but why do we, are we still using this word closure? Is this very common? And, and should we be moving away from this when it comes to death and, and family members passing away? I mean, you, you're you're describing closure. You're wondering about closure as putting an end to something. Mm. Um, and, you know, we feel it's very, very important to move from the physical to the emotional, the mental, you know, the image, you know, the thoughts that you carry with you forever and ever and ever. So I think we think of closure, or I'll speak for myself, Elena will speak. Um, closure... And, and and again, the reason why we think it's very important that a child have the information beforehand where there's time with the person, um, closure means coming to terms with the fact that there's going to be a change. Mm. And then being able to appreciate what you have with the person within that time and then forever after that. Closure means getting an emotional grip on the idea that there's going to be a change, there's going to be a loss, and meeting it with an emotional presence that enables you to remain as connected as possible through that transition. I I don't know, I'm interested in what Elena would say about that. Um, Um, I don't really believe in closure. Ah. I believe it from Michael is describing it. Absolutely, but I would not use that word. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because, not because I agree with Michael's concepts, but because Mm -hmm. the word is used in general parlance as though it means an ending, a shutting the door. Mm -hmm. And I, we don't do that. And uh, I also don't believe that we move on. Um, I think moving on is not something we human beings do. We stay attached. I mean, we that is the nature of who we are. So I think of it um, as not closure and not moving on, but what we call it in the book, which is moving forward with. And that's what you did about your grandpa dying. Um, and that's what children do, meaning that you, as Michael was describing, you figure out how you're going to carry this and it's going to be part of the fabric of who you are. You're irrevocably changed by every loss that happens in your life, not always for the worse, in some ways, sometimes for the better. And so the, the idea is, how do I carry this? How do I make this something that I can feel and also deeply engage in the reality that's here right now, and that which means this person is not here? Mm. And one of the ways we do that is memory. Yes. And in our hearts, like yeah. you were having about mm. your grandpa. Mm. I, I Let's move on to adults just a little bit, because something that I also enjoyed from the book was that we need to think about what our thoughts are around death and, and grieving and so on. So can we talk about grieving just a little bit? And the way I wanted to discuss this or just introduce this is uh, many years ago, um, my husband and I went to Thailand and I remember in this little village, I thought it was a national holiday. There was there was music and 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 dancing and celebration, but I didn't realize it was a funeral. <laughs> um, and it just got me thinking about the difference. Uh, my husband's Italian, and and grieving is very uh, intense at the funerals. And don't smile and don't like it's a, it. Things are changing a bit now. I find you know p- compared to many years ago, but there's still a huge difference. And, and, and that was my, what I've experienced here in Canada is in, with funerals is 
my own vision of grieving just sadness and staying in that sadness and what do we what is the grieving process and i i i've heard people say like there are right and wrong ways to grieve and you have to move past it and just don't stay stuck in it i've seen people mad when they're grieving at the person i saw it in my own family with my grandmother they had such a beautiful relationship and when he passed away it's like he became somebody different in our in her eyes and she was just very angry at at the fact that he had passed away um so i just look around me and we have we all have different ways of grieving and again i don't think it's that there are right ways or wrong ways but what is the grieving process in adults and what are some questions we should be asking ourselves or things that we should be doing to work on ourselves when it comes to grieving before we have these conversations with our kids i mean you bring up a huge huge topic i mean the 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 number one point i would make is that there is no one way to grieve there mm -hmm. is no wrong way to grieve um and since grief involves such a overwhelming feeling of emotion you can think of it as finding your way back to a balance where there's a balance between the the emotion that you're feeling and the way you can think about yourself at the same time and if you think about it at the beginning as you're just struck dumb by the grief by the overwhelming sense of sadness and 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 all that the loss means to you it's very hard to think and you know that's why we have friends that's why we have support and that's why we ask for help because we we just need everything at moments where we're overwhelmed by that emotion um and i, I mean i think I believe and I think we believe very strongly that a person needs to go through all of the steps in the way that they need to go through the steps and they're they they should not be taken out of that in an unnatural way uh, you know unless it be it becomes unbearable so you know medicine and Elena can speak more to this than I but medicine is helpful but on the balance you know you want to deal with the terrible mm -hmm. feelings so you want to have you know access to them i think that people become angry with other people because you know they're they're upset that they're losing them and so people lay blame i mean i would i would think that that's one step you know in the process and that hopefully a person comes to a more balanced reflection it's easier it's easier to bear but elena will have more to say i, I would just end by saying to you that we believe very strongly that there is no wrong way um, and everybody should have their time and their room to do it their way. Yeah, I second that motion completely. <laughs> um, you know, I um, like life and death. Okay, so death is part of life. And since living involves all emotions, so will feelings about dying and death. So anger is a natural part of it. Numbness is, a, we think numbness is a feeling. Actually, this is something that is um, an adult can explain to a child. So an adult though, you know, what is numb? I don't feel anything. What is that? Well, that's a feeling actually. It's a kind of, I don't want to feel anything right now feeling. Um, but um, we all do. We feel anger. We feel relief, disappointment, sadness, um, I mean, you know, on and on and on, name a human emotion. And we can feel it about someone who died. And 
um, as Michael was saying, the most important thing is just to give yourself that space. You ask yourself questions like, okay, so what am I feeling? And often it's, oh, I feel angry at this person. Well, that doesn't feel very good, you know, um, especially because everybody's touting how wonderful the person was and all the rest. But that's a natural human reaction because it was part of a human relationship. Um, There's a wonderful book by Helen Oxberry. She's a children's book Mm -hmm. and she um, draws pictures and there's, it's about a family and they decide to go on a bear hunt of all things. (laughs) And it has page in which they show the family traversing through some uh, obstacle to the bear. It might be a swamp. It might be a dense forest. And after each of those obstacles, there's a page that says this repetitive refrain. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can only go through it. Mm. And what I love about that is that's what grief is like. Mm. You're going to do it now. You're going to do it later. But at some point, you have to face it. So questions you can ask yourself, so how am I feeling? Who was this person to me? Mm. How did they matter to me? Uh, Maybe it was an uncle, but they were more like a a father to you. Mm. Maybe it was a teacher, but they reminded you more like, you know, of your grandpa. Mm. Um, So sort of sorting out how you experience this person. What do I want to hold on to about this person? What do I want to bring forward? Maybe this person had a wicked sense of humor. And so you think, well, you know, I want to I want to carry that sense of humor <laughs> forward. And I'm going to kind of see if I can crack any jokes like Aunt Jane used to crack. <laughs> um, so, you know, these things help you sort out your relationship mm-hmm. with the person and help you take in who they were. And when you can take in who they were, it's easier to process through that they're no longer outside of you in body form and they're more inside of you in your thoughts and feelings and in your heart. Thank you for that. Um, That sentence that you just said about numbness being a feeling, I took a screenshot and sent it to a a friend of mine who's grieving right now. And when I, when I, I, you even have it like, you know, on the side, like it stands out in the book and it just marked me that's true. Numbness is an emotion. I study emotions. I talk to people about emotions, but we never, we never look at numbness as an emotion. And my friend who's grieving her father, who just lost her father, I just sent that. And I said, it's okay to be the way that you're feeling right now. I I never had the words for her, which could be another conversation on its own, but knowing how to support somebody who's grieving or who I had a neighbor a few years ago, she had just given birth and then got diagnosed with cancer. That was a difficult moment. And it's hard to know what to say to people in these moments. Um, if, if you want, we can touch on it just a little bit so we can provide guidance. But just to say that that numbness uh, really gave me the words to say to my friend and to help her be okay with the feeling that she was experiencing, which she couldn't put words to and just felt numb. And now we, we get it. We have the words. So thank you. <laughs> you know, it's interesting the way that you put it. It, it. it just feels to me like this is so much a matter of discovering for yourself as you're going through what you're going through the language you know the connection between the emotion and any language you can come up with numbness i think represents the in between where you know you're helping yourself mediate what you can tolerate and because it takes time and because it's you know first time it's it's new um it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of bravery because 
we're, we're such a gratifying seeking gratification seeking <laughs> organism um <laughs> this is the opposite you're you're, mm-hmm. you're 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 allowing yourself to tolerate things that you would never want to have to think about mm-hmm. so I, I, I'd love to touch on emotions um, as we come near uh, and near the end of our conversation. Um, you spoke about a girl, I think it was Brianna in your book, she was an eight-year-old girl, but you, you mentioned unresolved emotions. And I want to bring this up because perhaps there's a parent who pr- might not have addressed it the way that you recommended in your book, let's say, and now they're noticing differences in their child's behavior. And it might be X amount of years later, um, which I think was the case in, in, in the, this example in your book. Um, how do we notice unresolved emotions? Let's say there was a death, you know, around a child, uh, around the time that they were maybe four or five, perhaps a parent or a dear, uh, a, f- a family member that was very close to them, or even a friend. And now you're noticing different, you're noticing a change, perhaps is it, would it be in the behavior? Would it be in their ability to regulate emotions? What would you notice in your child and how would you address this? So there, there are a few things that uh, come out behaviorally. One, uh, children, well, we adults do it too, actually, call it regress. Mm. You know, you go back <laughs> to earlier behaviors. Mm. Um, so uh, we sort of seek comforting things. And for children, that may be things that they did to get comfort when they were younger. That might mean they want to sleep with you in bed. They don't want the light turned out at night. Uh, they may wet the bed and they haven't done that before. Um, they may not want to engage in activities with their friends because they're feeling a whole lot inside and their friends are not, and they don't quite know how to be with them in the midst of that. So those are the kinds of behaviors you might see. Some children don't want to go to school. And that's because, well, there are a lot of reasons behind that. Um, We have thoughts about how to work with the school, but often it's because they don't want to be apart because they're afraid of what else could happen. Um, so those are the, some children cry, some children get very, um, non-emotional. They get, uh, like they're very, very into their computer games Mm. and they are showing absolutely no emotion. Mm. So these are the kind of behavioral things in terms of um, emotional things. As some children cry, some children stomp around and get angry. In the story that you're referring to, if it's the Brianna story, and just want to reinforce that all the names are made up and all the stories are changed slightly. They come from our deep clinical experience or personal experience, but we have protected everybody's identity. So Brianna was at sleepaway camp when her grandpa died and the family decided not to tell her. Mm. And then she gets home and on the way home from camp, basically dad says, while you were at camp six weeks ago, grandpa died. And she's then dealing with this whole wild range of emotions. And the family is six weeks later. So she's kind of isolated and she feels betrayed. Wait, and then guilty. I was off having a great time in camp and this was happening and I didn't know. So that leaves a lot of, as you were referring to, unresolved feelings. And in that situation, Brianna, as a later teenager, went to speak to Michael and um, had to sort out why she was not feeling trust with her parents, why she didn't want to talk about death or loss or anything. When the TV, you know, something happened in the news, she had to turn off the TV right away. 
So that had left a seed of avoidance within her, mm. what we sometimes call an emotional splinter. Um, and so it can come up later when there are things that are similar that activate. Um, I want to get back just for a second to what you were talking about adults and grieving. Mm. We believe that children sort of dose themselves a, a lot more naturally than us adults. Um, meaning that organically they will be um, able to sort of engage in play like you were seeing perhaps in Thailand and also then be crying an hour later. And, and that's how they sort of step in and out of it. And we adults don't tend to do that as easily. Um, we can numb ourselves out with Netflix and other things. We can, you know, immerse ourselves in work. We can sit and sob, but we don't really have that tra easy transition that we see with kids. And if you do see it with kids, we want it respected because they're doing just what they need to do. If they're playing, that means they need to play right then. And that's not a good time to bring it up then. If if you had a question <laughs> that you didn't that you didn't answer, do you want to do it when they're thinking about it again or when they're happy and playing? Oh, good question. <laughs> It always depends on the child. I mean, that's mm. very important to us. Um, and you, 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 it's, it's, it's always good to be in a better mood, but you have to be prepared for mm. there to be a lesser mood that sure. you're going to need to, you know, to offer mm. more support, uh, you know, during, during that time. But, you know, we're, we're really trying to say, We, 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 we don't get excited about parents who are trying to like change the subject or, you know, move to a distraction mm -hmm. um, because certainly the child, as Elena described, can dose themselves. Um, but it's we, we're hopeful that a parent can really carry the emotion with the child, you know, mm -hmm. so that the child can, you know, work it out. One more thing I this made what Michael said made me think of, which we believe is really important, which is um it's not about grief per se, but it's about that conversation with the child. Let's say you have that conversation, you think, oh my God, I really messed that up. Mm -hmm. I had in mind, and we have some examples of this in the book. I had in mind I was going to go in and I was going to say it just like this. And then I went in the room and I burst into tears and I couldn't say anything and I ran out of the room. Yeah. Um, and we think that's okay. It's human. Mm -hmm. And that it is a process, many conversations. So let's say um, you do that and then your child is playing and whatever. You might go back in, even when they're playing happily, and say something like, you know, that conversation we had before, I didn't say things the way I wanted to. Or I didn't tell you about it in any way that made it clear. So I'd like to talk about it again. And what that models for your child is we're not perfect, you know. And we are aware of our impact on people. And we we sometimes have to go back and reflect on that with the person it happened to. Would you do this as well if you lied in the, in the moment by mistake? So I'm thinking back to that mother who lost her child when she uh, recently at seven months pregnant. Um, uh, she, by mistake, when her three-year-old found out, he got very angry and said, but I want a sister. You promised me a sister. Will I ever have a sister? And the parents said one day <laughs> without realizing, just trying to, I guess, diffuse the, the, diffuse the situation. Um, is it okay to go back or, and, and say like, that's not, we said that, but we don't know, you know, can you do that with your child? 
it's important to go back. Yeah. I mean, you want, you want to, you want to go back. And, you know, another point that we make in the book is that each time you experience a loss, you experience all the other losses that you experienced. And, you know, you're as good with the one you're experiencing as you've been in working out the ones that you have experienced in the past. So you want to go back. You want to say it better the next time. Got it. I love that. That's such a good way to think about it because sometimes we were afraid of making these mistakes, but just going back and doing it better is such a nice like mantra or way to think about it. Um, I, I was um, fascinated at, at the fact that in the book you often, or you, you had these very specific guidelines in terms of when to talk about it or how the, the location or being with the family uh, and, and like not doing it before bedtime and weekends are better. Um, I think back to the times I've had to talk about it with my kids and I never thought about that. Can you talk about that sort of recipe <laughs> um, so that parents have a better idea of not now we know how to approach it, but when and, and where? So. I mean, we're talking, we have in mind an ideal circumstance. Mm. And of course, life doesn't always present us with these. But (laughs) if you have the ability to set it up, we would say not before bedtime, because we all experience nighttime as a time of separation. I don't know if you remember, you were not feeling well and you get into, and you've been kind of okay all day, then you get into bed, suddenly you feel much more sick. Mm. And it may not be that you're more sick, it's just that the other stimuli of the day are gone and now you're alone with yourself, your body and your mind. And that's what happens with a child when you say goodnight and why they want the light on and they Mm. call you back in for water and another (laughs) story and all those other things. So we would say try not to do it at that time because it gives you time with your child while they're awake and you're awake before that separation point. We would say do it with everybody in the family together. And if there are siblings of different ages, you speak to the youngest age and as a group, and then later you can go back and fill in more for the older child. And that's because you want to convey we're a family and we're in this together as best we can be. Um, Michael, you want to take on some more? We got a whole lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you know, we're trying to describe opportunities where we can emphasize being together and being together for as long as, you know, will be useful. Um, and it wouldn't be unusual for a child to run away and want to go and play, but at least you have the chance, you know, it's not before school. It's not, Mm. you know, when somebody has a work project, it's when people are available. Mm. And, you know, in this, in this day and age, it's very important to have as little distraction as possible. So we go so far as to say, keep the electronics off (laughs) and, um, you know, try to get cozy. Yeah. I like that. Let's end off our conversation with pets. <laughs> because, you know, I, I'm thinking of everything we spoke of. And is, does this apply to pets? Because the death of a pet um, could be very significant, especially for a child. Um, is there anything different that we should know when it comes to um, our pets? I mean, pets pets give an opportunity uh to experience attachment and closeness mm. and warmth. Um, it may not be as personal. It may not be as personal to everyone involved with, mm. with the pet, but we, we do treat the loss of a pet in the same way and as seriously mm. as we do, you know, the loss of a person um, because we know that especially to a child, a pet can have very special meaning. 
And is it a good way to start these conversations with their child? So let's say they haven't experienced a death in the family and you get a, a, I don't know, a fish (laughs) so that, that, you know, that fish might one day, you know, be floating at the top. And at least you can start having these conversations at small doses. (laughs) So you and Mr. Rogers agree on this. Yes. Mr. Rogers used to say every four-year-old should have a goldfish. Yeah, there you go. And the reason for that is because you get an experience, because they die. Mm. I had goldfish as a youngster. I called mine Mickey Mouse, actually. Go figure. I I was a little confused about what a quite animal (laughs) it was, obviously. And Mickey Mouse died very quickly and, um, you know, floated to the top. And my parents... Um, help me get the fish out of the glass bowl. And I put it in one of those wooden match boxes and we went to Central Park and we buried it by a mm-hmm. tree. And uh, I got to say, you know, goodbye, I miss you and, and all of that. And what that allowed for was it was a death. It was important to me, but it wasn't devastating. So you get like a taste of it that is less intense. Um, and so we believe, yeah, pets are wonderful things to have in a family. I always wanted a job. We never had one. And mm-hmm. I had to get to grow up to, in order to get one. <laughs> um, but we believe that pets are wonderful and that they're important in, in a family's life. Now that the book is out, what are your hopes? Uh, let's say a year down the line, uh, what would you hope that which kind of conversations are you hoping change or um you know what are your hopes now that the book is out you know when we sat down together we had come through you know a very important piece of work that we did together where we help people to talk about something that was extraordinarily upsetting to them and we saw what could be done with that um I, I I think I mean we have many hopes. Elena will be able to say some of them for herself. But the uh, you know one hope is that this becomes a conversation that is happens more and more often. Not because mm-hmm. death or or illness happen more often, but because people feel inspired that mm-hmm. it's a it's like a muscle that they want to help build. You know in their in their children and that they take it on together with. Um, with with it with a different kind of interest. Thank you. So said Michael. I, I would extend that to say that I imagine in my grandest notions that <laughs> we um the, the adults of today's generation raise a generation of children who grow up to get to be people who can embrace how rich and deep life is with all its good times and it's bad times and that they can talk to the people in their lives about difficult stuff, including death, because that's how we connect. And that means you have really deep connecting relationships. Mm. And I think that's what sustains us all. So I'm on a mission. I love the mission. Thank you to both of you for joining me today. Um, I really encourage everyone to get the book, Giving Hope. I will have the links um, to the book and and both on Amazon uh, in Canada and the States in the show notes for this podcast episode. Um, if you have any social media accounts, uh, anything online, I will share them as well, because I think all of this together um, will be really um, helpful to parents. Thanks again to both of you. Thank you. Ah, Cindy, it was wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. What a delight. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks to everyone for joining us here at the Curious Neuron Podcast. Um, Again, you can follow us on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron. You can watch this video on YouTube or any other videos on YouTube. And please subscribe and leave a rating for the podcast. Thanks, everyone.